Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. If you've got a Bible, I hope that you bring it with you and open it to today. You can open to the book of Philippians chapter 1. I would encourage you to bring a pen and maybe a highlighter so that you can highlight things, circle, write stuff out in the notes. All my study Bibles, if you were to go through and look at them, you can tell what my favorite passages are. You can tell what my favorite books to read are because they're all marked up and and uh, then there's other books that maybe you can tell I don't read as much because they look pristine. But there's certain books, you know, pages that look awesome, uh, all marked up, and you almost can't even read them. And that's, at that point, I go get a new Bible. But if you don't have a Bible, you need to let me know that, okay? If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, come and see me. We, that's something we can take care of around here. I can, I can take care of that. So um, don't, don't ever go without a Bible. We, we can fix that problem, and if you'd like to have one, we can make sure that you get one. Um, so week two, under pressure. You know, I have been blessed in my life with three children. They are grown now. I have three grown kids, and um, they're Bennett, Tanner, and Delaney. Uh, my youngest, Delaney, just, uh, she's 22 years old, just uh, moved off to Atlanta. Actually, she's 23, just moved off to Atlanta, Georgia, to start her career. Um, Tanner is still here in town, uh, studying a little bit. And Bennett, my oldest son, lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I often say this to new parents. You know, we we have once in a while someone comes in with their new baby, and they've got that. They've got one of those. It's amazing how baby stuff has evolved over time, right? Like used to be, you had to have a separate car seat, um, you know, separate rolled stroller and separate now they make those things convertible so that they can do all kinds of things now it's like a car seat and a stroller and a rocket launcher all in one thing right and and you just and you kind of need that but um it's amazing for me just to see what we put our babies in because it's like the technology is amazing like that thing's got bluetooth that's awesome um but you know parents will bring their babies in for the first time coming to church and and they'll bring them up to me and and you know kind of introduce me to their new baby and um, you can just see the pride and the love and the you know the they're looking at two each other like two cows dying in a hailstorm you know it's just so beautiful and wonderful and and I always say the same thing to new uh, parents I always say the same thing to them and that is you did not ever dream that you could love something that much did you you, you, you might love your wife, you might love your husband, and that's a great, special, wonderful love, but when they put those babies in your arms, there is no, there, you can't describe the kind of love you have for something that you were a part of producing, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, it transcends anything that I, I don't have words to talk about, and, and you, you understand that if you're a parent, you get it. You, you, you cannot imagine until you're a parent, how much you can love your children. We love babies. You know, for me, the cool thing about babies is watching them grow. From the minute they're born, they start to grow. From the minute they're born, they start to learn. Watching a little kid crawl around on the floor, and and there's that stage where they're learning something significantly new every day, and you can just almost watch them physically grow. It just seems like it's happening so fast. And you sit back and watch, and, and, and again, that's a wonderful exchange, and that's great. It's just fun to watch him grow. My son Bennett, uh, my firstborn, he's, he's, uh, 20, he's almost 28. He'll be 28 in December. When he was born, he was born with a cleft lip. 
He was born by C-section. So as he um, is being born, it was really cool because the anesthesiologist comes in with a beatbox, a boombox under his arm and a stack of CDs. I'm like, okay, this guy's pretty hip. And uh, he sets it all up and, and uh, he puts in dire straits. I'll never forget it. Bennett was born to dire straits. The walk of life. Da, 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 you know. And so uh, at his wedding, he danced to uh, dire straits, the walk of life. But when Bennett came out and they put him in my arms, I looked down at him and instantly there was something wrong. Bennett was born with a small cleft in his lip, in his mouth, uh, really his lip. Um, and it was insignificant. In fact, I asked the doctor, I said, put, I asked the, the plastic surgeon that, surgeon that would eventually work on him, I said, you know, characterize it for me one to ten. How bad is this? He said, it's like a t- two. He said, it's not bad. But it looked like, if you had seen Bennett as a baby, it looked like somebody had taken a pair of scissors and cut an inverted V out of his lip. And so they put him in my arms, and I'm, I'm holding him, and, you know, the first thing you do as a new uh, father or mother is you... And my mom said, make, count the toes, you know, count the fingers, make sure everything's there. And, and I'm looking down, and it's just obvious there's no, there's something's not right. Something's not right. And this anesthesiologist was so cool. He leaned over to me. He leaned over my shoulder. He said, boy, he's handsome. He said, I'll bet you're worried about that lip. I said, well, yeah, I kind of am. He said, sir, don't worry about that. He said, in, in three months, they're going to come in and fix that. He said, we've got one of the best doctors for that in the world right here in Cincinnati, and you don't have to worry about it. It's going to be fixed, and it'll be fine. Well, three months later, sure enough, they fixed Bennett's lip, and he grew up, and today, if you were to meet him, you would probably not even realize that he's got a, was born with a cleft. I mean, they did a really good job. But when he was born, he has this cleft. Three months later, he gets it fixed. He starts to learn how to move around. You know, I always tell parents, parents always think it's awesome when their kids roll over. I'm like, no, dude, your world just ended, okay? They just went mobile. They just figured out how to get the stuff. And it all changes when they go mobile. They, you know, he starts rolling over. He starts crawling pretty soon. He's walking. I've got a picture of Bennett. He was born in December. That next Halloween, he walked to get his own Halloween candy so that I could eat it, right? So because when they're little and cute like that, it's like, yeah, daddy's going to eat tonight. So we dressed him up in this little soldier outfit, you know, and he kind of toddled around the neighborhood with his little pumpkin bucket, and he got all kinds of candy, and it was really cool. And he's, he was, you know, he's 10 months old, and he's walking. And I know that's not outrageously young, but it's fairly young, and it was pretty amazing to watch him do that. And, he, you know, he's, he grows up. He's learning new things every single day. Um, about that time, we moved here, and, uh, you know, I've always been a big softball player and, and uh, just hung the cleats up last year and, and trying to adjust to life without softball. But when we moved here and I started playing with our team, the first thing that happened was I got a uniform from the, to fit in with the team. And, and uh, what was really cool was we were able to get a uniform for Bennett as well, and he's like two years old. So I've got this full uniform, and then we got one for Bennett, and there's a picture, and I looked high and low. In fact, I got so mad yesterday, you probably would have been ashamed of me because I could not find that picture because I wanted you to see it. It's so cool because it's a picture from us from the back, and I'm standing there with my hat and my glove and my uniform and my number, and Bennett is right there. He's about that tall, and he's identical, right? Like he's the little mini-me. Uh, just a really cool picture, and I've got to find it. And when I do, I'm going to get it framed. But... Um, you know, he's, he's started to learn and develop a love for sports like I did. Pretty soon he's playing t-ball, 
pretty soon he's catching and you know I'm one of those dads that thought he was going to be a major league baseball player so he had to have all the best equipment right so I mortgaged the farm and went and bought him catcher's gear he had his own catcher's gear he didn't have to use the old dusty stuff out of the team bag he had his own he would come walking to games you know with these big bags and and that's a picture of him with his catcher's gear on um there's that moment where you realize as a, as a dad, he's probably not going to play in the major leagues, which is a liberating moment for every dad. Takes all the pressure off at that point. Now we can just have fun. But I was that obnoxious dad that was like, you know, pushing my kid. I was the one that you would want to walk up to and go, would you just dial it down just a little bit? Like he is not going to be. And so about fifth, sixth grade, maybe older, we've, I figured out, okay, major league baseball is not in the cards for him. So I kind of chilled and, and, and backed off a little bit. Um, but, you know, at this point, he's learning rules. He's learning how his body moves and works. He's learning, how to, uh, he's learning about strategy. He's learning all kinds of different things. We sent him off to, to school. He starts to learn how to read. He's growing up, and, um, you know, arithmetic is something he's got to figure out, social studies, all that kind of stuff. He gets older, and I start to expect more and more from him. I expect maturity from him. I expect manners from him. I expect respect for your elders and for other people. And I expect you to, you know, to, to befriend those who don't have friends. I expect you to go to school and look out for that one that needs somebody to advocate for them. Like I talked very actively to my children about those kind of things. At about you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, he gives his life to Christ. And I had the great honor to baptize all three of my kids. And um, I need to move on before I start crying. But that's a significant moment in, in Bennett's life and in my life was the day that I was able to baptize him. Um, he learned how to use computers and cell phones, you know, as they get older and the technology starts coming into the world. They're learning how to do those kind of things. And then we gave him a guitar one year for Easter and he started to learn how to play the guitar. And now what Bennett does as part of his life, it's not his full income, but part of his income is made by playing the guitar on stages. And it's a dream of his to eventually get to Nashville and see if he can do something with that. Um, that's yet to happen, but we'll see. But this is a picture that was taken at Gwinnett Church in Atlanta, Georgia, which is one of the campuses that he plays. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be there that, that morning and, and to be able to take that picture. And I'm just so proud of him. But then he got married. <laughs> Now it's about learning how to sacrifice. Now it's about learning how to wake up every day and not just think about yourself, but to think about somebody else. It's about, you know, now he's got to figure out that he's got to take care of her. It's his job to protect her. It's his job to make sure that he is dying to himself, both to Jesus and to her every day. You know, I read that passage in, in Ephesians whenever I do weddings about women submit to your husbands and the wives all get mad at me. But really the hard part is his part. Because he's got to figure out how to die to her. He's got to figure out how to make sure that what she wants and what she needs comes before what he needs. And that's a work in progress, and they'll figure that out. They've been married three or four years now, and, and they're doing great. But, you know, that's, the, that's what happens for us in life. We start as babies, we go through life, we progress, we mature, we grow. But the journey of life is not just for kids. The journey, of, uh, uh, for the journey of maturity and growth is something that Jesus followers have to be cognizant of too. We should be concerned about it. What are the markers for growth? What are the markers for growth for you 
And what are the markers of growth for the other Christians, the, the Jesus followers around you? The focus of this series is a place called Philippi. This is a look at Paul's second missionary journey uh, that included the city of Philippi. And I have it circled for you at the top there in red so you can kind of see where it is. It is believed that Paul and his team, which consisted of Silas and Luke and Timothy, it is believed that they rolled into Philippi the very first time, somewhere between 49 and 50 A.D. And they are carrying God's gospel message of Jesus with them. They're basically coming into these towns and they're saying, listen, there is a God who is generous in his affection and his love for you. There is a God who wants to give to you things that you can't do for yourself. And he's, he's talking to them about how Jesus came to die to take their sin on himself so that they could be forgiven. The one thing we need more than anything else is to be forgiven. And how God laid his wrath off on this, the, on, for his wrath for sin onto Jesus, and we didn't have to bear that. We didn't have to take that, and it did not separate us from God. And that, and, you know, Paul goes into these cities and he's telling them things like that. He's telling them that Jesus uh, was crucified, he rose from the dead, and one day he is returning, and that is something that you can look forward to. And when that happens, we will all be taken back with him. And Paul's message is believe and follow. City after city, that's what he's going to tell people, believe and follow. And when Paul gets to Philippi, he's spreading this message, a community of believers sprouts up. We would refer to it now as a church. Ten years come and go for the community of Jesus followers, and things are not going well for them. So after Paul establishes this church and he leaves, ten years later, things are not going well. They're not going well at all. They're struggling in their faith. They have lost their focus. They have lost their joy. And it probably isn't a stretch that for some of them, they are losing their faith. And here's what I think. I think it's highly possible that some people have walked in the room this morning and I just described you. That things are just hard and you've lost your focus and you've lost your joy and you're on the verge of losing your faith. For the church at Philippi, things just aren't going well. There's a pretty good indication in Scripture that they are struggling financially and not just a little bit. It's a pretty severe thing. I'm talking about being on the brink of poverty and a large reason why is due to persecution. So you have to understand that the people of Philippi are intensely loyal to Rome. What's going to happen to you when you go and tell your friends and your co-workers that you have given your life to Jesus and that there is a kingdom other than Rome that you are placing your allegiance toward and it's not Rome anymore for you? Something called the kingdom of God. And now you're fully devoted to it. Well, when you tell that to the people that you work with, when you tell that to your customers, when you tell that to your friends, what they think is, oh no, if they start talking about some other kingdom, the empire is going to come down on us and they want nothing to do with you. So it's believed that many of the people in Philippi stopped shopping at the shops that were owned by, Philippi by uh, Philippian Christians. It's believed that many of the Philippian Christians came into deep poverty because they just basically stopped being supported by the masses. And now on top of all this, your spiritual father Paul is in prison. 
and we do not know what the Roman government has planned for him. In addition to all that, these beautiful followers of Jesus are having difficulty getting, getting along with each other. There is infighting. There is arguing. Paul will eventually write these words to them, do everything without grumbling and arguing. It's likely that complaining and arguing was becoming a part of, a, a, of their everyday life in the church and that it was becoming a problem. Hey, Philippi, how's it going? It's not going well. It's just not going well. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi to encourage them in their, and to try to salvage their struggling faith. They've lost their focus. They've lost their joy. And they're at risk of losing their faith. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul starts pretty much right out of the gate praying for them. Uh, he tells them hello, and then immediately he starts to pray for them, and he says, I need you to know what I hope and dream for you. I need you to know what I expect of you, and I need, I need you to know what I expect for you. The prayer starts in verse 3 of chapter 1. I'd like to read that to you. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And right out of the gate, he's letting them know that he's praying for them. And then we get verses 5, 6, and 7. And then finally down in verse 9, he says, And this is my prayer. And then verses 9, 10, and 11, there is a detailed prayer, very specific, where he begins to list every single thing that he is asking God for their lives. Now we're going to look at the prayer for them today, but there is a bit of an on-ramp that we need to take to kind of understand the prayer and to kind of see where it's going to go. So here's what it looks like this morning. We're going to talk about three things that Paul remembers uh, for them. Then he talks about, you know, I, I remember these things. These three things, three reminders and a prayer, basically. And if you're here this morning and you would admit, Brett, if I'm honest, I've got a faith, but I'm struggling right now. It's not going well. I've gone through some things that have been deeply disappointing i've had key a key relationship that has broken up or you might say you know physically i'm going for tests and i just have this sense that my body is starting to break down a little bit and i'm concerned about it or you know financially things have been better for me and i don't really know when they're going to improve uh, i think much of what we're going to see in the church at philippi you are going to recognize yourself in these people and you're going to say man brett that is just so me I just, I mean, when you talk about them, it just kind of feels like you're talking about me. Now, you may be here today and you'd say, no, actually, things are good for me. I mean, things are going great. Things are going really good in my life, to which I would say, awesome. I mean, that's cool for you. I, I, want, I would hope that would be the case for everybody this morning. And I think that, that even if you would say that there's not really a whole lot wrong in your life, that there's probably some things that this message is going to address for you as well. But certainly, if you're here and you're going through disappointment and discouragement, you're in that kind of season, we're going to look at some things that I think could really reignite your faith and help your struggling faith. Three reminders and a prayer. First reminder is this. Paul reminds them of their faithfulness. He reminds them of their faithfulness. Before I pray for you, before I tell you what I'm praying, I just want to remind you that I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful uh, for your faithfulness in the past. You see, these were not perfect people. But Paul has joy for them, and he is thankful for their past. I thank God every time I remember you. Every time I think of you, I thank God. See, that's, I understand that as a pastor. 
there are things that happen in my world that are, you know, there's, like all of us, there's just things that you do that are kind of mindless. When I'm mowing grass, uh, if I'm making a bed or if I'm folding clothes or if I'm, you know, drying dishes or something like that, I, when my mind can, can, you know, afford to just focus on something else, you come to mind. And oftentimes conversations that I've had with you will come to mind. And I'll think about you individually and I'll start praying for whatever it is that's going on in your world because sometimes we have conversations and you look at me and you say, Brett, it's not good. I mean, this just scares me. It's worrying me. I, I'm, I'm having a problem with that. And, and will you pray for me? And I try really hard that if I tell you I'm going to be praying for you, I try really hard to do that. And so I understand the pastor's heart in Paul when he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I, I've lost track of how many times I've been out and away somewhere and someone, one of you will come to my mind. And I'll just be thankful. I'll be thankful for the relationship. I'll be thankful for your faith. I'll be thankful many times you've been generous to me or benevolent to me in some way. And I'll be thankful for that. Verse 4, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, don't forget that this guy is in prison. He is awaiting trial, trial before Rome, and he does not know what's going to happen in his life. And here he is experiencing a life of thankfulness and joy, and it is not accidental that it surfaces right out of the gate as he starts to write this letter to the Philippian people. Immediately, Paul is modeling that you can be in a space that you don't like and still experience a life of blessing. You can be in space that is not necessarily pleasant for you and you can still have joy. In fact, God expects us to have joy. Is there anyone in here this morning who's in a space right now where you're saying, Brett, it's not a lot of fun to be me. It's not a lot of fun to have to go through what I'm going through. If that describes you, I'm just telling you, Paul was in a space like that and here he is telling them, I'm still joyful. I still am thankful. And now he's going to give a reason. I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And right away, as soon as you hear this message about Jesus, Paul said, when you heard the message of Jesus, you instantly started asking the question, how can we help you? He shows up in Philippi, he tells them about Jesus, they respond, and immediately they start asking the question, how can we help you? One of the first things that happened in Philippi when they first got there, on the very first visit, was they encountered this group of women, and specifically one businesswoman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple. That, that signifies that she uh, probably had some means, she probably had some social status, she was fairly well-to-do. You didn't deal in purple. Purple cloth was a hard thing to come by. And Lydia was a seller of purple cloth. And so she heard the message of Paul and she responds and gives her heart to Christ. We looked at this last week. I want to take you back there just for a second. Verse 15 of chapter 16 of Acts. When she and the members of her household, this is Lydia, were baptized, she invited us to her home and she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And then he says she persuaded us. Lydia was insistent. Lydia was really insistent. They said, you know, we'll, we'll find a hotel. We just got to town. We'll find a hotel. We'll find some place to stay. And she's like, absolutely not. You're going to come to my house. You come stay with me. I'll feed you guys. 
I'll put you up. You, you just stay with me. You don't need to go spend money on a hotel. This was a, a team of four people that she's going to bring into her home and she's going to take responsibility for feeding and making sure that they're comfortable, making sure that they, they have some place that they can sleep. Verse 15 says, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us. This woman's hair is not even dry yet. And here she is trying to figure out how she can move the movement of Jesus on down the road a little further. I want to help. I want to open my home as a base of operations for what you're trying to do for this new movement. Day one, right out of the gate, Lydia is saying, my resources are available to God's kingdom. Don't miss that. The moment she comes into contact with Christ, everything in her mind starts to change, and she starts asking questions like, how can I take what's been given to me and turn around and help God grow this kingdom? So you hear that story and you think, well, it's going to be a bummer when Paul and his team actually leave Philippi and go to the next town, because it's not like they had email, right? You can't email back to the last town and go, hey, things are going great here in Thessalonica. It's, it's, you know, it's awesome. We want to thank you for the friendships we made in, in Philippi, and thank you for the money you gave us, and thank you for taking care of us like you did, and, you know, we're gone. They didn't have that. Let me take you back to the map. You see Philippi circled in red, and you see Thessalonica uh, to the west there, circled in green, Thessalonica is about 90 miles away. Now we hear that, because we drove to church this morning, and we hear that and we think, well, that's not bad, 90 miles, that's not too bad. Hour and a half, a little less. The way some of you drive, a lot less. But they weren't driving to Thessalonica. What happens in Thessalonica? He tells us at the end of Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verse 16 says this, for even when I was in Thessalonica, 90 miles away, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So Paul travels down the road, 90 miles away, and while he and his team are there, someone from Philippi travels, probably not in a Honda minivan, travels from Philippi to Thessalonica, probably, hopefully they had a camel, but more than likely they were on foot. 90 miles to the next city, and they said, hey, we in the church at Philippi were worried about what was going on here in Thessalonica that make, to make sure that you had enough money, so we took an offering. We collected this, this money, and we brought it the 90 miles here to Thessalonica to give to you to make sure that the work that you're doing continues. And then those people are going to turn around and travel 90 miles back home. And Paul seems to imply with his words that that happened more than one time. Paul knows these people are struggling. And before he gets into what he's going to pray for them, he says, I just need to remind you how from day one you have participated with me and you have been very, very faithful. You have helped us. You've gotten involved in our work. And you've asked from day one, how can we help you? It starts with Lydia, it continues in Thessalonica, and then ten years later, Paul finds himself in prison. There is some conjecture among scholars as to whether or not at this particular time as he writes this letter to the Philippian church, there's some conjecture as to whether Paul was in Rome or whether he was in a prison in Ephesus. Most scholars believe that he was in Rome. And in uh, while he's in Rome, they track him down 
from Philippi, and they send him another gift. We read this in Philippians 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are sending this man gifts 10 years after his initial contact with them at Philippi. This wasn't just affection for Paul. This was a partnership. They believed in the message and they wanted to do everything that they could to see to it that that message got spread to the people that Paul was trying to carry it to. And they did it from day one. And here's the challenge for us. When we make a decision to be a, a Jesus follower, there should be no hesitation on our part. We should immediately be trying to get involved in the spread of the message of Jesus as soon as possible. In other words, if you were to give your life to Christ on a Friday and get baptized, Saturday morning you should be waking up thinking, okay, how do I turn my life into a machine that sees to it that this message gets put forward? How do I do something to help the kingdom of God grow just in the little sphere of influence that I've got? How can I make this happen? I have a question this morning. If you're not doing that, what are you waiting for? It is in your heart. God is in your heart. He has come into your life. Do not delay. Try to figure out what your role is in the kingdom of God. I want you to realize something here. Paul gives thanks for these people, but they are far from perfect. These are not perfect people. This is a group of people that are struggling relationally with each other. And they have a discouraged faith, to say the least. And here's Paul saying, I am so thankful for you. I have such joy because of who you are. Don't wait for perfection in the, for the people in your life before you start giving joy and thanksgiving for them. Because you may be there a while. If you're waiting for them to perfect, you're going to be there a while. Don't look for perfection. Look for progress. And when you see it, give thanks. When you experience progress with the people in your life, have joy over that. Reminder number one, I want to give thanks for your past. Remind, reminder number two, Paul reminds them of their certain future. Look at verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident of, Paul would say basically, I'm confident of a couple of things. I'm convinced of the who, I'm convinced of the what, and I'm convinced of the when. He who began a good work in you. This is God's work. And he says, I'm convinced that God is going to finish that work. He's going to finish it to completion until the day of Jesus. Until you see Jesus face to face, Paul looks at their past and he sees a faithful past. And he says, from day one, you've been faithful to me. Then he turns and he kind of looks into the future and he says, when I look into the future, I see that God is going to finish what he started in you. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I got a question for you. You ever disappoint yourself? Or is that just me? You ever discourage yourself? I mean, I know family and friends can discourage you, and I know that family and friends can disappoint you from time to time but there are those moments that we have where we kind of disappoint ourselves right do you ever say to yourself um, something like man I can't believe I said that that was just stupid 
You ever go, I, I, what was I thinking when I did that? That's, I, I can't believe that I did that. I, I just must have lost my mind. You ever say to yourself, man, that person is going through such a challenging thing. I'm going to make it my responsibility. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to send them a text. I'm going to send them some emails. I'm going to go buy a card, put a gift card in it, and send it to them just to let them know that I'm thinking about them. I know this is a really hard time for them. You know, I want to undergird them with prayer, and I'm going to, you know, I just want to, I want to think about someone other than me, and I'm going to do something for somebody else. And then a month goes by, and you didn't do any of those things. And you think to yourself, man, I am so disappointed in me. Do you ever disappoint yourself? You ever find yourself stewing about something that you should have let go of six months ago and you're still hanging on to it? I got great news for you. One day God's work in you is going to be complete and you're going to be better. God is doing something in you. It is an ongoing thing. And if you're not quite there today, the good news is he's not giving up on you. He's still working on you in you. He's still perfecting you. He's still growing you and he's still maturing you because God always finishes what he started. I would stop short of saying that it's one of my favorite television shows, because that's not true. But I would tell you that it is a show that whenever I'm flipping through channels, if I come across it and I see it, I stop. You have those shows, right? There's certain shows that if you see it, it's like, oh, we can't go past this. Just leave it there, leave it there, leave it there. Well, for me, one of those shows involves these two people, right? America's Sweethearts, Chip and Joanna, right? They're awesome. They have a show called Fixer Upper, and basically the premise of the show is they help young couples find houses and flip them, turn them into something beautiful. And the way the show works, and if you've ever watched it, you know what I'm talking about, but they got a really cool way about, the, about how they do the reveal. They do all this work. They don't let the couple see the progress on the house. They consult with them about colors and about you know, possible ideas, but the couple really doesn't get to see much as the house is developing. They really are putting a lot of trust in her and her uh, taste, which I think is really pretty good most of the time. And, and so when it's, when it's time for them to turn over the keys and it's time for them to see their new home, the way they do it is they have this mural, this great big mural that from the street, it looks like you would look at it, and it looks like a street view of the house the way it was before Chip and Joanna got to it. And as you can see, it's split down the middle, and it's put on rollers, and there's always this moment where they look at them and they say, are you ready to see your new house? And of course, the couple's all excited, and they can't wait for the reveal, and then they pull away the, the, the mural, and it exposes then the house that has been under construction and under remodeling for some time and then they start walking in and they go into each room and it's just you know their eyes are big and it's like oh my goodness that's so pretty oh you did such a good job and it's just one room after another after another and i don't know for me it's just fun to see people smile it's just fun to see people made happy i, I just watch the show and think oh that's cool they're just you know look how happy they are that's awesome I think what Paul's saying to the Philippian church is, hey, a day is going to come when you're going to stand there and the mural is going to be revealed and you're going to see what God's been working on and you're going to go, oh, that's so awesome. Oh, it makes me so happy. 
I, I, never, I never dreamed or believed that I could achieve that, or I never believed that I could be made into something like that. I never dreamed that God would do a work in me that would take me from what I used to be to what I am now. But here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. God always finishes what he starts, always. And he's doing a work in you. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he wrote to young believers, and he said it like this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, there's a reveal on the other side, right? Like we're, we're about to pull the, the, the mural apart, and you're going to see what's happening on the other side. He says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to be made perfectly, completely like Jesus. You have that to look forward to, and that's what Paul is saying to these people. Before Paul gets to the prayer, he says, I'm thankful for your past, but I just want you to know, I, kn I am very certain of your future. I know what God is doing, and God is doing a work in you. Guaranteed, God is doing a work in you. R. Kent Hughes is a, a pastor. He's not just any pastor. He is the reverend of the senior, he's the senior pastor emeritus of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, which if you're going to be a pastor of a church in Wheaton, Illinois, Wheaton College is in Wheaton, Illinois, and it's a great theological school, and if you're going to go to school there, if you're going to be in that town and preach, you better know what you're talking about, right? I would never, <laughs> I would never want to be the preacher in Wheaton, Illinois, but Kent Hughes is, and this is what he said, it is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. I am not confident in my history. I am not confident in my reverend persona. He is a reverend. But he says, but I am confident in God. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus because God always, always finishes what he starts. The last reminder before Paul's prayer is this. He reminds them of his love for them. I get up here once in a while and just tell you how much I love you. That is not uh, something that I'm generating. That is a heartfelt emotion that I feel for you. When I go on vacation and I'm away for a couple of weeks, I miss you. I, I enjoy my vacation and have a really good time, and the next vacation will be a camping one, so you, you know I'll enjoy that. But even when I'm camping, I'll be thinking about you. Even when I'm camping, sitting in, at a campfire, staring off into space, I'll be praying for you. Even, even as I'm away, I'm thinking about you, and I miss you, and I miss your presence in my life. And once in a while, I'll just get up here and tell you that I love you. And Paul is doing the same thing. But he doesn't quite say it like that. He says, I have a deep affection for you. Here's how he says it. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart and... Whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, I just need you to know how much I love you. Now these are people that are struggling in their faith. Things are not going well for them. Their spiritual father is in jail. They are going through severe economic problems they are having relational challenges with one another and he says i just want to remind you that i love you very very much 
the letter to the Philippians is not some cold, calculating thing. I want you to listen to the tone as Paul writes to him. It's a tone of friendship. I know you're struggling, but I love you very much, and I have you in my heart, and I long for you. Here's a question I have for you this morning as you sit here. Do you need to reignite your passion for the people around you? We live in a world that is silently distinguishing our love for one another. What would it look like for God to come around you and rekindle that fire? Let me wrap up. There's three reminders and then Paul gets to the prayer. The prayer is special and unique to the Philippians. It is special and it is detailed. Paul is chained to a Roman guard. He is on his knees asking God to do a deep work in the lives of these struggling believers and what's he going to pray what might he pray for their struggling faith and what prayer are you going to pray for your struggling faith and what prayer are you going to pray for those who are struggling around you paul prays that they will have three things very quickly number one a smart love verse nine and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight listen loving people can be complicated you have to be smart to love people. Because sometimes when you're trying to love them, what you're actually doing is hurting them. I've had to learn this the hard way. Sometimes my efforts to love somebody, in the effort to love them, all I'm doing is making it worse for them. Sometimes you have to know when to be silent, and sometimes you have to know when to speak. Sometimes you have to know when to come alongside and put your arm around somebody, and then there's other times when you have to get a hold of somebody and grab them by the shoulders and shake them a little bit and say, listen to me. I'm trying to help you here, and I need you to listen for just a second. And it takes smarts to know the difference. It takes smarts to know when you just walk up beside somebody and you don't say a word. You just put your arm around them and, and love them. Love means putting the needs of others before your own. It takes smarts. Second thing Paul says is, he prays is, he's praying for what's best. Verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best. We often ask the question, what, you know, is it wrong? But that's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, is it best? Is it best? Is it best that I, that I play video games until 3 a.m.? Probably not. Is it best that I shop online out of boredom? Probably not. Is it best that I have as my number one goal in life to make as much money as I can? Probably not. We ask, is it wrong? But the question is, is it best? And then finally comes to this. He, he prays for smart love and he prays, you know, what's best. And then finally, he prays for right fruit. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Right fruit is about right, relating to God and relating to other people the right way filled with the fruit of righteousness. Are you growing the right fruit? See, you're going to grow something. Are you growing the right fruit? The plains outside Philippi were lush, and the fruit that grew there was amazing. So when Paul writes this about right fruit, their mind instantly goes to this fruit, and they're thinking, oh yeah, we're like the capital of great fruit. And Paul's saying, hey, but are you growing in your spirit? Are you growing the right fruit? See, here's the thing. We're going to grow something. You're either going to grow materialism or generosity. Which are you growing? You're either going to grow in arrogance or you're going to grow in humility. Which of those two things is growing in you? You're either going to grow in self-centeredness 
or you're going to grow into a servant of Christ and the servant of other people. Which one of those is growing? Paul gets on his knees and he prays for them and the Philippian people and he prays that they will produce the right fruit. Smart love. What is best? Right fruit. Now let me just wrap up this morning. Shelby and the band are going to come out and they're about to sing a song that I, it's one of the most beautiful songs I've heard in the last year. I want you to give yourself to this song. This song is a prayer. Some of you have walked in here this morning and you're, what you really need me to do is grab you by the shoulders and shake you out of your slumber because spiritually you have fallen asleep. Spiritually, the fire that used to burn inside you is starting to grow dim and I need to kind of shake you and blow something into the embers to make it stir back up. Not me, God needs to do it. And so I want us to not just, the song may be a little unfamiliar to you, but I want you to try your best to sing along. I want you to sing this as a prayer for your life and for the people that you come to church with and that you call your friends. But if you're here this morning and the light's kind of going dim, if you've walked in and you said, Brett, spiritually things are not good, this is a song for you to pray. Let's pray for you together and then Shelby will come out. Father, uh, for this group of people, I just pray your richest blessing on them. For the ones who've walked in here and it's dark in their world and they're discouraged, I pray for them. I pray that they would leave more encouraged. I pray that they would know that you are with them. I pray that they would have a joy in the midst of their unbelievably bad circumstances. And I pray that the people who are watching that from around their circle would look at them and marvel and say, how are they doing that? And that they would be able to say, Jesus in me. So Father, we just yield ourselves to you and we ask you to come breathe a new fire into each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.